Hey, how's it going, Hey Founded listeners? This is your host, Justin Ardell, with the Investor Bites segment of the Hey Founded podcast. On this segment, we bring in Boston's best, brightest, and most experienced investors and advisors to give you founders the advice needed to take your venture to the next level. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we're welcoming David A. Rosen. Uh, David is a local angel investor, Boston entrepreneur, as well as the CEO and founder of the Acrylic Group. Now, David, uh, if you'd like to take it away and tell us a little bit about yourself, we'd love to hear from you. Really excited to have you. <laughs> well, thank thank you for having me here, uh, uh, Justin. It's uh, it's an honor, and uh, um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, and I'll try not to be too verbose. But um, half of my career, I, I've been a tech guy, you know, since I was uh, in my teens. And half of my career I've spent as a strategy advisor uh, helping form strategies for the largest tech companies in the world. Uh, and that those tech strategies have typically led to some form of acquisition of companies, uh, joint ventures, partnerships, and in many cases, greenfielding or starting up new businesses to enter new markets and new product areas. And I, I've also worked for the Defense 10 uh, only on the commercial side, not on the military side, but helping them look at getting into commercial markets so that when the defense budgets were waning, they would look at strategies that would help them develop new revenue sources or leverage underutilized assets that they've developed for the military and the government that they could employ and get commercial revenue from. So I've done everything from taking ASICs and MEMS uh, for the big five defense, one of the big five defense contractors into oil and gas exploration. I've taken microwave modules and radio systems into telecommunications. And I even took a high powered amplifier that sits on the front of an AE6, which is basically a plane that takes out radar systems before the bombers come in so that the bombers can come in unimpeded. And one of the engineers thought that they could apply it into the television industry. Well, in fact, um, when I, I was brought in by the board to validate their business plan and they could actually reduce the power consumption of a television station in half compared to any conventional technology. And as we all know, television stations consume a ton of power. And so um, what a great value proposition. But the real challenge is what do two people who are used to selling to colonels and generals know about going after 3,500 TV stations in North America and another 800 outside of North America. So my team and I stayed with them. Um, this was a division of Northrop that was then sold to L3. And now they own significant market share in that industry. We cut their go-to-market costs by, down by about $9 million. And it, it was a very successful entry into the commercial sector by a technology once it was brought out from behind the black robe. Um, very quickly, uh, the other half of my career has been spent in running businesses. So I've, I've had um, uh, a couple of turnarounds that I've, that I've uh, led. One of them was a, a, a 15, $17 million business that I turned into $150 million in revenue business in under five years. Um, and I've had uh, seven startups, all technology driven, and uh, I've had two and a half successful exits from those startups. But in, in my journey throughout life, I've just been very lucky 
where I've worked with some amazingly talented and smart people. And um, I've been able to accomplish things because I really believe that it's it, it is a group of people that makes things successful, not any one individual, including myself. So the, 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 the thing that I do as part of what I do now in terms of giving back and helping founders get started and helping middle market companies find their revitalization and their growth and their re-energizing themselves in their business, um, it's all about helping people do things that they never thought that they would do. And um, so uh, uh, I spend time as a board advisor uh, working with private companies, and I spend time with um, at, at the universities, as you know, guest lecturing and judging competitions and helping people move along from one stage of growth to another. Um, and then my company just focuses on supporting owners and founders of middle market companies to help them escalate and grow if they're B2B based. And I've been very lucky. I've, I've also done been involved in over 40 uh, acquisitions of companies by my clients or directly by me uh, over time. Wow. David, thank you so much. That is a quite the amazing track record there. I think that, you know, just for the topic of this episode, you're absolutely the best person, the most qualified person to have talked about this. <laughs> I may not be the best, but, uh, you know, thank you for finding me. <laughs> hey, hey, if you can bring an advanced uh, warplane technology to telecommunications and TV so successfully, I, I, I'm more than confident that we can uh, talk about bootstrapping. Uh, bootstrapping as well as the lean startup methodology um, and just your thoughts on that you know, driving revenue growth in that company that you mentioned, uh, and just with your extensive experience working with teams and startups, um, I, I think you definitely have some awesome insight into that that can help our, our network of founders out. So I guess just for those who are new to the concept, how would you describe or define bootstrapping in kind of that, that <laughs> startup environment? You know, since you since we first talked about being on the show, I, I've given some thought to what bootstrapping means, even though I've been a bootstrapper throughout my career. So as I define bootstrapper for myself from when I started working at 12 years old, um, I didn't have to work, but I felt like I wanted to work and I felt like I needed to work. And I've always carried what I thought was a bootstrap mentality. And the bootstrap mentality meant, you know, I, I work and focus on doing better in business. And that started with when I was 12 years old, what do I expect of my manager? What did my manager expect of me? Uh, or when I, you know, took a risk and started growing a business, what was I doing that I could get great results but minimize the amount of expenses against those results because I just have a mentality of, of saving. And so bootstrapping is a personality trait in some ways. And so it speaks to the mindset that you have as an individual, but it's also a strategy and method of doing business. And, um, as, and thirdly, it's also a mentality and a cultural guide. But like anything, it has its place. So being a bootstrapper has meant that when I started my software companies, I started 
with a very with my own bank account. I started with my own wallet and a couple of founders, and I funded the businesses. And to me, bootstrapping meant how do I make the fastest progress in the shortest period of time and the greatest amount of growth with my own capital? And so that gave me a spirit that basically said, look, the most important thing we have to do is we have to focus in on those things that are going to give us the greatest yield to growth results. And that meant being customer obsessed and client centric uh, from the beginning and really understanding what their needs and goals and problems were and then ensuring that we had a value proposition that was targeted and centered towards a group of people who exhibited those goals, problems, or needs. And so when I've started my companies, it was all about being focused on that because I had no choice. I had no other capital to fall back onto, and it meant that we had to be laser focused. And this has been a philosophy that I've had even in helping the largest of companies grow because Sometimes a company will grow and they won't have they won't have a bootstrap mentality and they'll figure let's just go buy something. And so I've been in the situation where I've worked for large tech companies that had a couple billion dollars in their pocket and you could tell that it was, you know, what used to be a term of burning a hole in your pocket. Uh, and they wanted to go immediately buy something for a billion or 2 billion dollars. And yet I was the 20 something going to them saying, "Look, you're no different. If you just go buy this business, you're no different than being a financial investor. What you're not doing is looking at what value you bring to this business so that if this business had an ongoing momentum of a 10% EBIT and a 10% growth, what are you going to do to help it achieve a 20 or 30% growth? And or what are you going to do to increase its EBIT and its earnings potential? And so you're looking at this business as an outsider. And so even in my 20s, I developed a strategy called get your feet wet first and then dunk, which basically advised I, I worked with my clients who at that time were the gray hairs and I was the young Turk. And I basically say, let's buy somebody who's on the inside of the industry that complements your capabilities and, and, and strengths and also fills in you have weaknesses when you go to this new market. And so the important aspect there is that once you have a view from the inside of the market, that's going to be a better view to figure out how you can actually change and, and uproot that market with a new operating paradigm and do something different rather than just continuing the momentum of the business that you're buying. And so that get your feet wet first by getting inside, gave the insider's view and also figured out where your weaknesses were and filled them in and then allowed you to go dunk with a billion dollar acquisition. And so that was my strategy that I've deployed over many years. But it, it starts with that bootstrap mentality. Now, I, I talked about it being a mentality, but as a strategy and method of business, it's really helpful to be bootstrapped in the early days of, a, of founding a business because it really allows you to understand that you have limited resources that you can spend, whether you've raised a half a million dollars or whether you're working out of your savings of $20,000 or $5,000 or whether you've raised $20 million. 
that bootstrap mentality will still keep you focused on the four fundamentals of a business, which is, you know, are you client and market obsessed and are you intimate and understand it? Do you understand your product and its ability to fit and have a strong value proposition with that customer and market? Do you um, have the economics that makes sense for the product and value proposition that you're putting together? Can you actually make money at it? I mean, Justin, you and I, I've seen many kickstarted products that raised a million dollars from a marketplace for a new product, and they spent over a million dollars of cost of goods sold to bring the product to market. And so how do you start with 101 or 102% cost of goods sold and get it down to being a viable business where the cost of goods sold you know, needs to be under 20% or 15%. It's funny you mentioned that. I'm in a very similar spot with the startup I'm working on. So <laughs> I'd love to chat about that later. But hey, founders, if you're listening, you know, we all start somewhere. Right. And, and so you have a great sensitivity. If you really want to build a profitable business, it's important that you keep in these factors, the customer and the markets, the product, the uh, business economics, and most importantly, the people that you have focused on this business. As a bootstrapper, you learn to stay focused on all four of those things because typically, in my experience of working with hundreds and of, of founders on their businesses and looking at thousands of companies for acquisition, the number one reason why companies fail is that there's no market for their product. And yet most of the founders that we all meet are very technology focused. They're focused around their product. And I don't know if, if you said it or heard it, but I, I've heard it too many times where it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm asking to that if they can get some customer feedback before they move forward. And they're saying, let me get the product done and then I'll get my customer feedback. And so a bootstrapper realizes that that the design principle is a great way to develop product and that you iterate and constantly change and you're agile as you go. Um, almost every business I've ever been involved with, when you start the business and you've got a founding team, you think you know what it's gonna look like a year from now of what that business will look like. The reality is when you get there a year from that first point in time, it's wholly different than what you anticipated or thought about. And therefore you need to be nimble and agile along the way. So back to my point, it, it is a, a, a personality trait and, it, and it's a uh, mentality and a culture. However, it also has its place because if you, look at it as a strategy and method of doing business. It's really great to have that mentality in the first year of your business as you're proving your concept, as you're testing and validating your concept. But it also gets in the way of growth and scaling, which are the next two stages. And so you have to be able to understand that you need to move from being a bootstrap mentality to now being a growth and scaling and aggressive mentality that has to change the way in which you think, the way in which you strategize, the way in which you move forward. And so that's kind of my definition of bootstrapping, um, if that's helpful. 
That's very, very helpful, David, for sure. Give us a great, complete picture. And I think that you've definitely provided a lot of examples of like what makes bootstrapping successful or unsuccessful. I think there's a really interesting point that you mentioned um, where you talked about the idea of getting inside of the industry that you're working in, right? Uh, or getting inside of the business. I think that that's something that's really crucial to kind of that lean startup methodology and learning from what others have done maybe, uh, or just learning about what practices or operations are standard within the industry. Just for my own startup, uh, that's something that, that I've done. I very much understood the industry that I'm working in, understood what's around me, and it's definitely allowed me to leapfrog certain stages of development and really you know, prevent some of my own spending on the startup. That's it's what's allowed me to bootstrap and be so lean with getting it off the ground. Uh, what are your thoughts on the value that that brings to founders? Do you think that, you know, how do founders get ahead with such limited capital, limited resources as best as possible? <laughs> I, I, I go back to my four pillars uh, of people, customer market obsession, product expertise or service expertise, and then finally the business economics the thing to me that drives and, and what, what has made me successful over time is my obsession for customers and markets. And it's really about understanding why people buy things and recognize that when you have a market, the market is full of people who are innovators early in the market, which is the front one or two or three percent of that market. And then you've got other categories of buyers that won't buy until the previous uh, part of the market segment is bought to prove out that something actually works because they don't have the mindset to make the investment in time and money to go do something new. And then you start getting the, 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 the fast followers who follow those best in class. And like Burger King had no real estate uh, um had no real estate department because all they would do is they'd let McDonald's go find the places where there'd be great foot traffic and driving traffic. They'd go buy a, a, a and buy real estate and then Burger King would just follow them because they let them do the work and therefore their costs were lower when it came to real estate so they could put more money into other parts of their business to be competitive. And so the same thing with the fast followers, the fast followers aren't making that investment in the millions of dollars to go do something, but they're letting someone else cut their teeth and show that they did it. And in order to remain competitive, that they quickly, they quickly follow. And then you've got the, the other sections of the mass market. And so it's a matter of understanding why people are buying early on yep. and being able to convert that and understand that the product that you've developed for those early innovators will be different when you find the fast followers and when you find the the mass market because they mm -hmm. will let someone else prove out the value of what you've created and belief system that you've put into place and just accept it. And so they won't buy it until it, that's accepted by someone that they can go to and realize that, well, if they did it, I should do it and I've got the money to do it, so I'm just going to go do it as opposed to the people who are really going to buy it initially, do they have a following? Do they are, do people listen to them? Do people watch them? Or are these isolated events that you're selling it to? Because there's a lot of businesses that get to a million dollars in revenue, $2 million, $5 million. And 
they'll stay that way for 10, 20 years if they're allowed to. And they never break into really creating a new market or innovating into a market. They just create a lifestyle business where somebody says, well, I'm comfortable taking home, you know, $200,000 a year or half a million dollars a year. I don't need to build a, a 10 or 20 or 50 or $100 million business or I'm not going to create a unicorn out of this business. There's also a lot of companies that fail because they never found that value proposition and they were, you know, getting a million or two million dollars in revenue, but spending twice that and 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 taking on capital that might be ten times what they are receiving in revenue. Gotcha. So kind of a, a cautionary tale there of it's how things <laughs> go south, right? I mean, I mean, that's a lot of interesting points there. I think that you know we're kind of most of this conversation is based on the idea that they're potentially incumbents in the industry or others who have done it. But if you're looking at bootstrapping from an entrepreneur who's maybe in a spot where nobody else has done it, they have a product and it's uh, it's a first mover. Uh, it's completely new. Um, it's something completely new. And they're, they're again, really innovators in the space. Um, how do you bootstrap then? It can be a kind of a kind of a scary place um, with so many unknowns. I mean, sure, market uh, validation, product market fit. Um, but beyond that, again, are we going to stick to those four pillars that you mentioned or is there something else? No, you know, what I found is that those four pillars come from from everything from the due diligence checklist that I've used, which for a multi-billion dollar company can be, a you know, a hundred page due diligence checklist. It all boils down to those four pillars those questions underneath to understand what the risks are, to understand what the momentum is, to understand what the potential is, to understand the value of the intellectual property, the ability of the people to continue to innovate and change. And so whether it's a multi-billion dollar business or whether it's a, you know, a half a million dollar revenue business, you know, that you're looking at those four pillars are still critical pillars to manage growth and success through the stages of growth from being that, you know, testing the concept, iterating on the concept. It's really all about finding that value proposition that you know will last through the mass market. And where a lot of people get get thrown off track is they get some momentum of their first five customers or 10 customers and they lose sight of the fact that they are really that that they when they set out in the business that they thought there were going to be tens of thousands of customers for this product or service but now they're focusing on 10 and they're finding that it's really hard to get from 10 to 100 and sometimes they never cross that chasm they never get to those fast followers because there wasn't a market there and so it's a matter of making sure that you're really not just being customer obsessed, but understanding can you apply what this customer is doing and learning and apply it to the other 10,000 customers just like them and that they'll buy this at different points in time as you mature your product or your service to them. Gotcha. Because, you know, it, it, you know <laughs> in my experience, it, it's easy to sell 10, 20, or 50 of something, I don't care if it's a million dollars each or if it's a, 
you know, a contract value of $2,000. It's really understanding if there's a market or not. And, and the market isn't just those people up front who took the time to invest their time and energy because they wanted to do something different and saw the value in your product or service in order to help them in their business be more successful or in their application as a consumer or their personal needs. It's all about paying attention and then really quantifying, well, how big is this thing? Totally. Totally. That totally makes sense, David. And it, and it, it also speaks back to the why. Why do, why do people believe that what you've got for them is going to make a difference to them? And honing in on what that means to my day-to-day -day life, what it needs to, I, my, the goals I want to solve, and what it does for the problems that I'm currently facing. And the best way I can think about it is the person that you're talking to who's your potential customer, you want to help them understand why if they choose you as a product or a service for them, that it's going to help them in their peaceful time and their meditation time of being in the place they want to be either sitting on the beach sipping mint juleps or reaching the top of their next climb or their next you know bike ride to the top of the mountain that they wanted to get to before it was time to turn around because it was going to get dark on your way down and accomplish things that they wanted to accomplish but didn't think they could or they felt better about doing it. Got it. So you have to give them that belief. You can't just sell them the what. It's just like there's so many people who have created the what's but nobody cared about the what. It's like... You know, when I ask the question about, well, you're going to three times what the current product does today in the technology in terms of, you know, nanos per second, I said, well, what's the market for the current product? Well, it's not very big. Well, yeah. then why would they want something that does it three times better if there's no market for the one times better? <laughs> yep, exactly. I, I totally get you. Why do it? You know, why do it if nobody's asking for it? Awesome. Yeah. And, and David, I think just kind of like kind of a last question with the time we have here in terms of, you know, moving from that bootstrapping and that lean methodology phase to, you know, an investment. Say you're say an angel, a VC, whatever investment vehicle, you know, comes after you or, or you go to them, you, you know, you agree on something, you know, you're, now you're getting funding. Um, how do you continue to operate in a lean way? I think we've touched upon it, um, but like, where's that threshold? Like at what point do you go from just like, I'm using my own resources and what I have to, okay, now I've got some cushion here. Um, is there a fine line? Is there any cautionary tales that you have for our, our Boston founders here? So moving from startup and testing concepts, I work with a lot of startups that are physical products in addition to software, but it's really defined by the software. And the challenge of going, of, of developing a, pro, a concept to a product is really challenging. It's not just going from the prototype, but it's developing that first engineering sample that tells you what is a, actually the manufacturing going to look like. That's the greatest step before you get to market acceptance.
And so you've got some things that you've got to pay attention to that if you focus on those four pillars, but you don't have to do it in a strategic way. You really have to keep those four pillars in mind so that, you know, I remember when I used to run engineering teams that were two, 300 people with 12, you know, 12 month uh, release cycles. And then what I was able to do with, you know, a software company that I started in 2002 as a SaaS product that I was able to do with five people and two part-time QA by applying agile and lean methodologies to even my software development. So I'm of the belief that you can apply agile and lean methodologies to any business and, and it's a matter of applying it at every stage of growth from concept to prototyping to market entry to growth and to scale. There are different ways of managing your business, but those four pillars just change in terms of what's needed to run your business in those stages. And so it's a matter of understanding that what started and was helpful to be bootstrapped at the beginning helped you increase your value dramatically without going for outside capital, which meant that the first time you go for capital, you truly have a good value proposition and your valuation will be strong and supported by customer testimonials and a validation of the market. That will help propel you for the money and capital that you're going to need to get you into the growth phase and more importantly into the scaling phase. And the three other pillars regarding people, people I think is the most important pillar because when you're in the startup phase, you typically have two or three people and potentially they may not have managed anything more than their lunch money before they started this company, much less trying to, to manage three of themselves in a, as a team. But then to go from that startup phase into the growth phase, requires that you have to think completely differently and you have to start delegating differently and you start having to parse out roles and responsibilities that has to be managed throughout your cycle. That's the real issue where bootstrapping is helpful at the beginning, but bootstrapping will not help you get through the phases of growth and scaling if you truly have a valid market opportunity you need capital to go after and pursue it, and you need people with different skill sets that need to add to the team, and, and even the team's value that you keep those four pillars in mind as, as you're growing. So the idea is yeah, those four pillars are critical, but your business and how you operate and manage it, it has to evolve. And so the mentality that you start with in a bootstrap way has to evolve and, and you need different people with different mindsets and different cultures in order to get through the, the, the growth phase successfully and then growth to scale. And whether you're going from lo being a local, local business to being a regional and national and global business, or whether you're going from a single product solution where you have to be deadly focused on the value proposition of that product to just demonstrate and prove that there is a product market validation. Um, it's important that you evolve and change over time. Gotcha. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, David. And we're going to kind of shift the topic a little bit now uh, to talk about kind of 
any macro insights that you might have. Uh, I feel like it's it's been a trend to discuss on the world of VC, uh, angels, uh, really any, again, an investment vehicle. The market's kind of taking a downturn, generally speaking. Um, you know, we're seeing less of an influx of funding and, you know, investors are being a little bit more cautious. They want to make sure that businesses are more robust. What are your thoughts on that? So, um, <laughs> I, I've always lived in the paradigm that an opportunity, if it's well-defined, is always going to be an opportunity. And so if you have a great opportunity and you think you clearly understand the needs and goals and and challenges that a customer segment is facing and you've got a solution for it, there will always be funding available for you. And again, being a bootstrapper and back to our bootstrap start, I, I have always been more proud of the customer revenue I've raised than any of the equity that I've raised for my companies. And it's really the that I can get customers from the beginning to pay for something that has never been done before helps validate to any investor that there is an opportunity here. And then the question is, is that opportunity, does it exist with a handful of customers? And therefore it's just a point solution? Or is there a market for it where there's hundreds or ten, you know, thousands of prospective customers? And yes, this market has become much more conservative, but that's also, I believe that angel investors are becoming smarter that their own personal capital has been challenged over the last year in terms of, of our savings and our 401ks that we rely on for our futures and any returns that we've been getting in the market have been negative in the past year. So people will always be cautious. But if you truly have a unique value proposition and an identified market, and you have a and you have the people that you think can start that business out and help you get moving forward, and you've got the an understanding of what it takes to bring that technology to market, and more importantly, you understand the economics of that business in order to do that. That you know you didn't rely on the fact that. Customers are expecting to pay two thousand dollars for something in the when it gets to you know customer one hundred to ten thousand, but it costs you two thousand dollars to actually produce it. That if you don't understand those economics from the beginning, it's not going to help. And so this doesn't change over time. A good a good product market fit is a good product market fit because it should be relevant to the current marketplace, not to yesterday's marketplace and not to a year from now's marketplace or 10 years, well, with some exceptions. Biotech has many exceptions where they're looking at things 10 years down the road or five years down the road and the average concept to market time is 13 years uh, because of regulatory processes. 
But if you're in a commercial marketplace, um, or more, or if you're in the consumer marketplace, <laughs> value is value. Got it. Totally. Value is value. Listen to that, guys. Value is value. I think that's a, a key, really key takeaway of our time here with David. Um, David, do you have any any last insights? Uh, just you know, we've covered a lot. Um, I think it's been wonderful for for you know us here as well as our audience. Um, any advice to those bootstrappers, uh, to those those startup folks here in the Boston area? I think the most important you know, things are that understand that bootstrapping is a mentality, but it doesn't work when it comes to growth and scale. You need to evolve with your business. Um, you know, one of my mentors, uh, a, a very famous venture capitalist, he, he when he invested in an early stage company, a seed stage or a round company, the first thing he would say is, I love this business because I love the founders. I think they're great. It's just a shame that they're going to be replaced in two years. And so it's a matter of, do you have, do, are you open to being agile in your own personalities as an individual and your own personality as a founding team to the fact that you must evolve with the business as it evolves and change the way in which you act. And so you have to move from a bootstrapping mentality to capture the flag as quickly as possible in as many places as possible. And so that's an important concept. The other one is something that, that's a basic uh, a law that I think came out of uh, uh, Steve uh, uh, Blank or one of the academic leaders of thought and founders is the founder's dilemma that a lot of founders get caught in the perspective that they want complete control and ownership and will do everything they can to own and fight that for that role. When the reality is, if you look at the majority of successes in the world, the companies that reach their greatest potential are the ones where the founders have stepped back and shared that with other owners and other capital providers so that what they've created is the unicorn and something much bigger and larger because they're not in complete control, that they've understood that it's the group of people that evolves over time to make things ultimately successful. And so going back to the concept of Founder's Dilemma, is important to right side your thinking about, you know, when to use bootstrap thinking and when to move on to business scale and growth. Totally. Totally. And that'll ensure that those founders, you know, stay at their companies. I would, uh, I would hate to get kicked <laughs> out of mine after two years. <laughs> I like my startup, but, um, all right. You know, you say yeah. that, but Justin, a, a lot of founders that I've talked to are repeat founders because they don't necessarily jive with what's required to grow and scale a company that they, they get their kicks out of, finding that next product market fit and and that's what turns them on and that's what gets them excited and some of them realize usually after the fact that they enjoy they're enjoying their life better because they know that they love seed stage businesses and a round businesses and that they're very good at it 
And so it's okay to recognize that you're okay there and that you then need to find professional executives and and strategic partners that will help you evolve that business to do things that you don't like to do or don't want to do. You know, when you're managing 10, 20, 50 people, that that's an environment in itself and a psyche and a an excitement. Yeah. But when you start going to 100 and 200 and 300, you start having to deal with more personality issues. You have to deal with a lot of other things that are more administratively based and process based. And you have to start formalizing your organization. You have to formalize your thinking. That's a completely different mindset. And you may or may not want to be there. And so it, it happens on both sides of the equation. That's that's really interesting. Putting it in that perspective, it could be me. Could be that I could be that series A. Seat <laughs> guy. I mean, we we all we all that. are. Uh, we all have to understand what really drives us, what our purpose is, and what we want to get out of things. Um, you know, I know I will never retire. Um, I just I love what I do. I've been very lucky where um, I was school that if you enjoy what you do then everything else will come along with it it's just a matter of knowing that what you're doing has a purpose and has some some value to others and so um i've been able to enjoy what i do and everything else has come along with it so far david that's pretty much everything for me I think that we've had a, a wonderful episode here for our viewers. Um, we've answered so many questions and that have been, you know, maybe nagging them and they've gotten them answered now. Thank you so, so much for your time. We're really happy to have you speak on Hey Founded on the Investor Bytes segment. And we uh, hope to stay in touch in the future. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad to be here. And you can always reach me at uh, drosen at acrylic group. That's A-C-R-E-L-I-C group.com. And you know, I, I, I really appreciate you bringing me on and uh, I, I hope this helps. Um, I'm here to help. That's what I enjoy doing. Thanks again, David. It's been amazing. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And that's David A. Rosen with his advice on not only bootstrapping, but the lean startup methodology and just staying focused, making sure that you're directing your energies where they need to be. Some great takeaways from this episode. Thanks again for listening, guys, and stay tuned for the next episode of Investor Bites on the Hey Founded podcast. Take care.